If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning and welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ on this Memorial Marathon Sunday, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Let us pray together. We need this day to be gentle, Holy One. Almost 30 years after the bombing, we are still tender. It seems like both a lifetime ago and just the other day. We each know where we were. Some of us were at the office, some of us in our fifth grade classroom, some of us running errands, all of us unaware of the fragility of life, none of us ready to learn otherwise. And then, then our hearts broke into a million pieces, and we are still trying to put them back together. We are tender, Holy One, because grieving is not like finishing a book. We cannot file it away. We have not moved on although we have been trying to move forward. We are tender, Holy One, because what caused that act of terror so many years ago continues to fester. It seems as if the saying actually reads, and now hate, fear, and nationalism abide, these three, instead of what Scripture actually says, which is, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. Hate, fear, and nationalism have a way of hardening hearts, Holy One. Help us to use faith, hope, and love to keep them tender. On this day, may our hearts cling relentlessly to all that is worth remembering. May this day offer a thin place where heaven and earth meet and time falls away. May we be ever mindful that lives are built one decision at a time, crafted one moment at a time, molded one memory at a time. So let us go and live fully now. Have faith now. Have hope now and love each other now.
With tender hearts we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came on everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. It sounds like the perfect church, doesn't it? It sounds like Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is describing the perfect church where everyone is holy, everyone is spiritual, everyone is generous, everyone is devoted, everyone was nice to one another, everyone is learning, everyone is working, everyone is sharing, everyone stays to help clean up after the potluck. The description of the church in the book of Acts raises some obvious questions, namely, Is this an imaginary church? Is Luke making stuff up? Is this nostalgia talking? After all, Acts was written somewhere around 80 years after the death of Jesus, but purportedly reports what happened just after the death of Jesus. Acts, in many ways, has served as a link from the Gospels to the letters of Paul. But if Acts was actually written after most of the Gospels and after most of Paul's authentic letters, the author is really writing in remembrance. And remembrance can be tricky. Remembrance, writes theologian James Mays, is a risky venture for the church. But not always. In my library, Mays continues, I have probably a dozen histories of local churches, most of them as engaging to read as a telephone directory. All of them are affectionately written by some sincere local historian to ensure that the contribution of dear Uncle Mortimer to the construction of the banisters on the front steps of the church will not be forgotten. Such church history is down-home hagiography, idealized remembrance with most of the messy, really interesting stuff, lovingly censored. Fierce arguments over the purpose of the church, the trustees' debate over what to do with the 1948 Christmas offering, the person who stormed out in a huff in 1959 over the selection of a new pastor, are nowhere to be found, swept under the carpet. In their place, we have lists of former pastors, past teachers of the men's Bible study class, and fascinating data on the square footage of the new parsonage. Now, the author of Acts is not above a little hagiography of his own, but we need not spend a long time with Acts 
before discovering that the book is engaged in a more significant undertaking than the writing of an official history of First Church Jerusalem. Indeed, it would be easy to dismiss these five verses as a remembrance as seen through rose-colored glasses. I mean, there is just no way that this kind of church existed because church people know that this is not how church is. It's not that we're proud of it. It's just that we are very aware that church is not a place of perfection, but of practice. And most of us need more practice at being kind, generous, prayerful, devoted, and, well, nice. But here is Luke seeming to claim that everything was absolutely perfect in the early church. For Luke, the early church is an idyllic society marked by shared meals and prayers, awe or reverence, signs and wonders, communal sharing and retributive economics, ritual faithfulness, joy, and goodwill and growth. But as it turns out, Luke doesn't actually seem overly interested in painting a rosy picture of the past. We just have to keep reading past verse 47. This description of unity and public goodwill in verse 47 is followed quickly by stories of persecution and communal discord. It was not all sunshine and rainbows. Luke tells us about the dark and stormy parts too. Ananias and Sapphira, for instance, that terrifying story of the husband and wife who lied about their giving and then dropped dead. Yikes. Acts also tells us about Peter groupies and Paul groupies and the fighting between them and, in some cases, the utter absence of hospitality in some places. And this, I think, indicates to us that Luke is not trying to sell a story of a utopian early church. This comes as a relief to some of us. Most people don't want to hear about a utopian church, at least not the kind that Luke describes of everything being held in common. I mean, we are not really interested in, quote, holding everything in common. When asked about his decision to end our state's interagency council on homelessness, Governor Kevin Stitt said the quiet part out loud, telling the media that giving people free stuff is not the answer. And while many of us wouldn't ever phrase it that way, we aren't exactly into radical sharing as we are, say, offering a radical welcome, which mostly costs us nothing and lets us stay in our comfort zone. It's important we do self-reflection as often as we offer critique of those we rarely see eye to eye with, in part because it can reveal that we are not nearly as righteous as we think we are. No, we're not too anxious to study this passage too closely. It's a little pointed. It makes us uncomfortably aware of what we're not doing and what we're not willing to do. As James Mays observed, a pleasant, if somewhat idealized, recollection of the past becomes an assault upon present reality, a bold refashioning of the church, a critique 
of our current discipleship arrangements. What first appeared to be history or apostolic memoir explodes into a fierce argument about the nature of the church, the meaning of the Christian life, and the sustenance of discipleship. Now, before you X out of this sermon because you don't want to hear a story that makes us feel bad about ourselves or feel like we're not doing enough or feel like we're doing it wrong, wait a minute. This is not that sermon. And I don't think that's why Luke wrote so poetically about this particular early church community. There are likely a dozen reasons why Luke would portray the church in this way. Namely, that these are Luke's ideals of what a church ought to be. Luke might also be painting this picture for political purposes, which is to say that Luke may be providing this as social commentary. Here, look, he says, something besides the status quo to aim towards. And this gives us the opportunity to get curious about what else is out there what other people are doing and how they are doing it. Instead of worrying that we will be found less than or wanting, what if we used the story to be found curious and open to new ideas, helpful suggestions, a shoot for the moon and you'll land among the stars kind of thing? Just last week, the New York Times ran a story about the Belgian town of Hale, spelled G-E-E-L. It's not the first time this town's story has been told, for it is indeed remarkable. NPR reporter Angus Chen explains. In the town center of Hale, there is a church dedicated to Dymphna, a saint believed to have the powers to cure mental disorders. It's a medieval church with stone arches, spires, and a half-built bell tower. And it, has, and it has inspired an unusual centuries-old practice. For over 700 years, residents of Hale have been accepting people with mental health issues into their homes and caring for them. It isn't meant to be a treatment or a therapy. The people are not called patients, but guests or boarders. They go to Hale and join households to share a life with people who can watch over them. How Hale came to be this way begins with the town's devotion to St. Dymphna, whose church stands in the center of town. According to legend, Dymphna was a 7th century Irish princess who fled to Hale from a maddened father and devoted her life to serving the mentally disabled. But she became a martyr when her father discovered her location and traveled to Hale to behead her. The town built St. Dymphna's church in the 14th century to honor the saint, it became a popular pilgrimage site for people across Europe who would bring loved ones to the shrine in the hopes of finding relief from their mental distress. By 1480, the town had built a small hospice on the side of the church to accommodate pilgrims, but the shrine became so popular that the pilgrims overwhelmed the annex's capacity. Sometimes the families would return home and leave their uncured relatives in the hospice, says Mike Jay, a historian of psychiatry and curator for the Welcome Collection in London, who has studied Hale. So local people began taking them in as guests or boarders. Since, eight, since the 1860s, Hale has had its own state psychiatric hospital, which is the anchor and safety net for the program. 
Wilfred Bogarts, a leading psychologist there, said that finding patients for the fostering program was not so much about their diagnoses, but rather about how stable their conditions were. Boarders include people who have schizophrenia or other severe psychoses, but who have settled into a treatment and can function well in a family. Potential boarders are matched with families that have been screened and have had their homes approved to take in a boarder. Diagnoses are never revealed to foster families unless the boarder chooses to share. Caseworkers instead focus on preparing families for what kind of behavior to expect, the medication regimen, and red flags that should be swiftly reported. In Hale, police officers regularly come across boarders behaving strangely in public or even breaking the law. But because of the town's culture of fostering, they know how to de-escalate a situation and to call the psychiatric hospital immediately. The approach stands out from that in the United States and elsewhere, where calling law enforcement may be the first move when someone is experiencing a mental health crisis. In many situations where the police are involved and training is insufficient, the results can be violent and even deadly. That is particularly true here in Oklahoma County, where when people are taken to our county jail, even for mental health crises, they are likely to die in custody. There have been six deaths so far this year, three in just a four-day period last week. Like the early church Luke writes about in the book of Acts, life in the town of Hale is not perfect. It doesn't always work. Foster families have taken advantage of borders as free labor. Sometimes a border's mental state requires them to move back into the hospital. There are limits in the care people can and will give. And yet, it seems that what was said of the church in Acts could also be said of the town of Hale. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, I know that in recent history and in our particular context, salvation is associated with the afterlife. But that's not what we find in the Bible or in most of history. In his book, Convictions, Marcus Borg explains, the root meanings of salvation and being saved are rescue and deliverance to be rescued, delivered from a negative condition of life to a new and positive way of life. They are about this life, not the next. Perhaps the best contemporary synonym for salvation is transformation, to be saved from one way of life to another. Transformation, otherwise known to us as salvation, is about liberation, reconnection, seeing anew, acceptance, and the satisfaction of our deepest yearnings for peace and justice in this lifetime. Christianity at its best, Marcus Borg says, is a path of transformation. Or as Luke says it, and day by day, the Lord added to their number of those who were being saved. This is the work of the church beloved's transformation, transformation of our hearts and minds, 
transformation of systems and institutions of oppression, transformation of our communities, schools, neighborhoods, and cul-de-sacs from one way of life, from negative conditions, to a positive way of life. So today, instead of fussing about whether or not the early church in Acts was possible or probable or imaginary, let's accept this invitation to think outside the box, to do what we can to upend the status quo, to be generous, to be attentive, to do our part of transforming the world, knowing that we won't be perfect, but we can still get it right. Let us take the baton from our ancestors of faith and run with it. And day by day, the Lord added to their number of those who were being saved. May it be true of this beloved community too. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.